0: In the early hours of November 19, 1961, two men clung to their overturned catamaran several miles off the southwestern coast of New Guinea.
1: Their boat had capsized nearly 24 hours earlier. Their local guides had immediately swum for help, but there'd been no signs of a rescue since, and the current was pushing them further
0: out to sea. Before long, they'd be out of sight of land and in the shark-infested open ocean.
1: One of the two men was a Dutch anthropologist. The other was Michael Rockefeller.
0: Rockefeller was the youngest son of the governor of New York, scion of one of the wealthiest families in the world. He also happened to be a strong swimmer.
1: He wasn't going to be left stranded, so he decided to swim for shore and get help.
0: He said, I think I can make it, and then set off for the coast of what was then known as Dutch New Guinea.
1: That was the last time Michael Rockefeller was ever seen.
0: Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing.
1: Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts.
0: If it's gone, we're looking for it.
1: You can find previous episodes, as well as ParCast's other podcasts on your favorite
0: podcast directory. Some of you have been asking how you can support Gone. Well, if you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen.
1: Today, we'll be looking into Michael Clark Rockefeller, the youngest son of former New York Governor and United States Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. The 23-year-old Michael disappeared after his boat capsized off the coast of Dutch New Guinea during an art collecting and anthropological expedition in 1961.
0: After a 10-day search that followed, no sign of the young man was found. He was officially declared lost at sea. But very few people have ever been satisfied with that explanation.
1: Today, we're going to delve into the various theories about what could have happened to Michael Rockefeller.
0: The first theory is the official one, accepted by his family and the Dutch government, that Michael died before he reached land.
1: The second theory posits that Michael made it to land, only to be picked up by a local tribe with whom he lived for the rest of his life, either by choice or as a captive
0: and the third and most disturbing theory suggests that michael made it to shore only to be killed and eaten by members of a local village that still practiced ritual cannibalism
1: in order to understand why michael rockefeller's disappearance has captivated adventurers for more than 50 years We have to go back to the mid-20th century, to Indonesia and the most remote reaches of what was then known as Dutch New Guinea, to the place that captured
0: Rockefeller's imagination. In 1945, as World War II was ending, changes were happening worldwide. On August 17,
1: 1945, the Indonesian islands, which had been Dutch colonies for nearly 350 years prior to Japanese occupation during the war, decided to declare their independence.
0: After four years of brutal guerrilla warfare, the Netherlands finally recognized Indonesia's independence, but they refused to hand over the western half of the island of New Guinea. Desperate not to lose their last remaining sphere of influence in
1: Asia, the Dutch argued that the culturally Melanesian New Guinea wasn't part of Indonesia. As many waning colonial powers did, the Dutch claimed that they were now acting as a guide for Dutch New Guinea. They would help the island's peoples prepare themselves for self-determination and self-rule in the modern
0: world. And, as the Dutch government pointed out with a wink and a nod to other Western governments, they didn't have communist sympathies like Indonesia's new president Sukarno did.
1: This uneasy peace was kept until 1957, when Sukarno pressured the international community to get the Dutch to hand
0: over their half of New Guinea.
1: Against the backdrop of the Cold War, tensions
0: started to rise. In the meantime, the Dutch colonial government had spent the 1950s rapidly expanding their reach across the island. For the previous century and a half, only the Christian missionaries had gotten to know the local cultures— while the Dutch administrators had left much of the island and its people alone.
1: But now that the Dutch wanted to prove that Dutch New Guinea could be a functioning, independent country, the government was on a mission to bring what they saw as primitive societies into the so-called modern world.
0: One of the areas with the least Dutch colonial presence was a lush, swampy area along the island's southwestern coast known as the Asmat region, Even for the local
1: peoples, who'd lived there for generations, Osmot is a hard place to live. Its muddy jungle, crisscrossed by countless rivers on the edge of the Arafura Sea, isn't very conducive to growing crops. Big game options are restricted to the saltwater crocodiles that prowl the rivers and the occasional wild boar. Fishing and shrimping are adequate at best. The steamy tropical climate means intense daily rainstorms and plenty of mosquitoes,
0: and other biting bugs. The culture that evolved here is insular and tribal, as it would have to be in order to survive in such a place. Traditions and tales are passed down by families through a storytelling tradition involving both music and dance. Nearly every functional object is ornately carved, conveying meaning, tradition, or a story.
1: It would be these strong artistic traditions that would ultimately draw Michael Rockefeller to Osmot.
0: Just like the Osmots' art and culture, their worldview had developed to explain life in such a harsh and isolated place.
1: According to journalist Carl Hoffman, who spent four months in Osmot and a month living with a tribe, the Osmots' traditional worldview dictates that nothing happens by chance and that everything, from illnesses to storms, is driven by interactions with spirits.
0: Additionally, everything in the world must be kept in balance at all times. For example, a sick person will only get better when the evil spirit has been placated or otherwise dealt with in order to restore balance. And just as the Osmat people lived on one side of the sea, the spirits and ancestors lived on the other side of the sea in a place called Safan.
1: But the aspect of the Osmot concept of balance that they became most famous or really infamous for was headhunting and the subsequent ritual cannibalism.
0: While Osmot cannibalism may have initially grown out of a practical lack of protein, it had become an elaborate custom integral to the Osmot worldview. In order for the headhunting ritual
1: to be carried out— Villages would raid one another or trick gullible victims from neighboring villages into murderous traps. A successful raid or trap triggered a long, prescribed ritual of butchering, eating, honoring, celebrating, and more, in which a whole village would traditionally participate.
0: But when one village raids another, they would know and expect that the village that they had raided would likely do the same to them at some point in the future. The world had to be kept in balance
1: throughout most of the netherlands tenure as colonial governors of the western half of new guinea they hadn't interfered too much with the osmot and the osmot for their part thought the white people from across the sea had come from safan the
0: land of spirits but as the dutch tried to prove to the world that the island was getting ready for self-rule they started to become more involved in the Asmat region. First and foremost, they wanted to make it very clear that headhunting had been outlawed.
1: In late 1957 and early 1958, a sort of war broke out between two neighboring villages, Omadesip and Ochinep. After a deceptive attack by the men of Omadesip killed scores of men from Ochinep, Ochinep retaliated. The bloodshed went back and forth until the two related villages managed to reach a truce when a leader from Omedesip gave his daughter to Ochinep,
0: Unaware of the treaty, the Dutch governors were focused only on the bloodshed and headhunting. A colonial patrol officer named Max Lapre decided that he needed to make it clear that this behavior was unacceptable.
1: Lepre sent a force of armed police to the village of Omadesip, where they arrested a number of men, confiscated weapons, and burned canoes.
0: Two weeks later, in early February 1958, Lepre learned that the village of Ochenep was putting up a fight. So he headed there himself with an armed contingent of Papuan police. After a long journey up the river, Lepre arrived
1: at the village to find all the men waiting for him. Some had weapons, but others didn't. Both Lepre's crew and the Ochinep villagers were scared, and tensions were running high.
0: It's hard to know exactly what happened, but everyone seems to agree that there was a misunderstanding, and several of Lepre's men started shooting. Within seconds, five villagers were dead, their bodies mutilated by firepower the locals had never seen before.
1: In one respect, La succeeded. The Osmat realized the Dutch didn't react well to headhunting. But the practice didn't stop. The villages that continued to practice it simply moved the rituals deeper into the jungle, where the white men wouldn't see it.
0: And this, in turn, allowed the Dutch to claim that headhunting and cannibalism no longer existed in Dutch New Guinea. They were one step closer to their goal
1: little did any of them know that one of the richest men in America was about to step into this cultural and political tinderbox.
0: At almost the same time as LaPray's raid, Nelson A. Rockefeller, scion of one of America's wealthiest families and soon-to-be governor of New York, was opening the Museum of Primitive Art in New York City.
1: Having spent a lot of time in Latin America, Nelson Rockefeller had developed a love of pre-Columbian art and had gradually been expanding his collection to include works from Africa and the Pacific Islands as well.
0: Up to this point, most other Western museums had presented pieces from non-European societies, especially those deemed as primitive, as ethnographic and anthropological finds rather than works of art. With his new museum, Nelson Rockefeller's goal was to present the pieces heat-sourced from non-European societies in the same way that the Louvre or the Met would present European art, as art without an ethnographic context.
1: All of New York's movers and shakers attended the opening party for the new museum, as did Nelson Rockefeller's 19-year-old son,
0: Michael. Michael had little interest in either the family business or politics. But he did share his father's passions for art, culture, and adventure. And his father's new museum gave him some ideas for alternate post-college plans. After he graduated from Harvard in 1960,
1: Michael spent six months in the U.S. Army Reserve, gaining the discipline and fitness of military training, And then he managed to postpone his family's expectations that he go into business, finance, or real estate by getting himself staffed as the sound technician on an ethnographic documentary sponsored by the Harvard Peabody Museum.
0: While he had no experience as a sound technician, Michael had plenty of enthusiasm. And, no doubt, the Rockefeller money he was able to put into the project probably helped guarantee his place on the trip.
1: And so, Michael and the Harvard team touched down in the highlands of Dutch New Guinea in early April 1961.
0: Their goal? To document the Donnie, an isolated community who lived in the Balium Valley, high in the mountains in the middle of the island.
1: For his part, Michael Rockefeller fell in love with New Guinea... He loved the landscape, the art, and interacting with the isolated people who had no idea he was a Rockefeller.
0: Now a trustee on the board of the Museum of Primitive Art, Michael decided he wanted to collect art for the museum that had never been seen in New York before. The director of the film had put him in touch with Adrian Herbrands, a Dutch ethnographer who lived in New Guinea and had written about Asmat art.
1: As soon as Michael looked into the Ozmot region, with its cannibals, its forbidding landscape, its ornate wood carvings, its decorated skulls, and its isolated location, he knew that was where he had to go.
0: But his destiny in Ozmot would be far darker than he imagined.
1: We'll find out what exactly lay in store for Michael after the break now back to the story
0: michael rockefeller arrived in the remote Osmat region of dutch new guinea in the summer of 1961 with a plan to collect art from the local Osmat people but he didn't do so in a vacuum to a number of major players in international politics michael's trip was of great interest
1: He was the son of one of the richest and most powerful men in America and the world. His father was the governor of New York and had recently run for president. Not long before, the Rockefeller family had donated the land for the United Nations headquarters in New York City, making Michael a de facto diplomat on his international travels, whether or not he realized it.
0: Simultaneously, the Dutch government in The Hague was fighting tooth and nail to keep their last sphere of influence in Asia.
1: That September, the Dutch foreign minister, Josef Loons was planning to present a plan to the UN that would outline Dutch withdrawal from Dutch New Guinea over the coming decades and the creation of an independent country that would be politically aligned with the West.
0: Needless to say, Sukarno and the Indonesian government weren't happy about this. They felt New Guinea belonged to Indonesia.
1: Both the Netherlands and Indonesia felt that U.S. backing would decide the matter. And to the Dutch government's dismay, new President John F. Kennedy's advisers were suggesting that giving Dutch New Guinea to Indonesia was the only way to keep Sukarno from turning to
0: the USSR. So when Nelson Rockefeller's son said he wanted to go on an art-collecting trip in one of the most remote reaches of Dutch New Guinea, the Dutch saw an opportunity.
1: The government furnished him with a guide, anthropologist Rene Vossing, who knew New Guinea well but had never been to the Osmond region before. They connected him with everyone they could in the area, from colonial officials to missionaries to scientists. Everything that the son of one of the most powerful men in America wanted, he would get.
0: In turn, the Dutch hoped that they would get a powerful ally in the United States. Michael
1: Rockefeller arrived in Osmat for the first time on June 22, 1961.
0: He and Vossing started with introductions to the Dutch officials, missionaries, and researchers in the area who knew the area and the villages.
1: Michael was most excited to meet Cornelius van Kessel, a Dutch priest who was less interested in proselytizing than getting to know the locals and their culture. Van Kessel had learned the Osmot language, knew his way around the winding rivers, had integrated himself into the culture, and knew the people in every village in his area. Michael recognized that van Kessel was just the man to help him identify and obtain the kind of artwork and pieces he wanted.
0: In the meantime, Michael and Vasing were escorted by a small coterie of experts on the region, and Michael found himself captivated by the Osmot culture and the world around him.
1: He wrote, Now this is wild and somehow more remote country than what I have ever seen
0: before. His original plan was for this first trip to be a fact finding mission before he linked up with Van Kessel in a few months for a more dedicated art collecting trip. But Michael couldn't keep himself from starting to barter for Osmat objects.
1: Before long, he was handing over tobacco and hunting knives in exchange for an entire village's handmade spears, collecting shields and drums and convincing a family to part with decorated skulls.
0: There was some grumbling from the local Dutch authorities about Michael's interest in these so-called authentic goods. Their concern was that he was creating an anticipated demand that could cause trouble for them.
1: One law enforcement official claimed leaders of a village asked for permission to go headhunting for one night in order to get more skulls, presumably, according to the official, to sell to the
0: art collectors. But Michael was less interested in the skulls and tools of war than the 20-foot-tall ornately carved bish poles he saw in some villages.
1: When a family member died, a bish pole was carved for their spirit. In order for the spirit to be sent to Safan, the land beyond the sea, it had to be balanced. And when the person had died through headhunting, the ceremony to balance their spirit required the blood and spirit of a reciprocal headhunting.
0: Michael didn't know all of this, of course. He knew the Bish Poles had something to do with ancestors and spirits and that there was a ceremony. But while he recognized that most of the other pieces he was buying were functional— The bish poles seemed to him to be purely ceremonial and artistic.
1: He finally succeeded in buying four bish poles in the village of Omadesip. The ceremonies for them had already been completed, but fortunately for Michael and his team, the poles hadn't yet been put out in the fields to rot.
0: The more success Michael had, the more enamored with Asmat he became and the more he wanted to explore. Next on his list was the village of Ochenep, which he had heard was more isolated and combative than anywhere else he'd been. The people of Omadesip, who'd had the bloody war with Ochenep just a few years
1: earlier, were at first reticent to act as guides. But finally, one man with family in Ochenep agreed to take the white men there.
0: Michael recognized immediately that Ochenep was different. It was a city by Osmot standards— with five Zhu houses and hundreds of residents. The culture there was even more distinctive as it was less influenced by the West due to its isolation.
1: They also had 17 Bish poles, all of which were still in the village's Zhu houses, which meant the ceremonies for them hadn't yet been
0: finished. Michael was captivated. He bought seven of the poles, exchanging tobacco, fishing line, and fishing hooks for them as down payment. He'd pay more when the villagers delivered the poles to a meeting point downriver in a few days.
1: But the Ochinep villagers never showed up at the meeting point with the poles.
0: Shortly thereafter, in July 1961, Michael had to return to the Balium Valley to finish shooting the Harvard Expeditions film, but he was already planning his next trip to Asmat.
1: Unfortunately, he was further thwarted. After filming wrapped in August, Michael received word that his father was planning to divorce his mother and marry one of his aides, 18 years his junior.
0: Michael headed home to New York to be with his family in their time of turmoil.
1: He didn't stay long, though. Just as he didn't want to be defined by his family, Michael wasn't going to let his father's choices stand in the way of his dreams.
0: In September of 1961, he was on his way back to New Guinea, he met up again with Rene Vossing in Hollandia, and the two returned to Asmat with the goal of making a book of photography and collecting more art for the museum.
1: But without the organized expedition of their previous trip, hiring locals to take them around in canoes wasn't as easy as it had been. And even when they could get a canoe ride, it was only ever for day trips. He and Vossing found themselves stuck in Agats, the only real city in the region.
0: Michael Rockefeller was a young man used to getting what he wanted, and he started to get impatient. He badgered the local Dutch patrol officer to take them around on the sole government speedboat, but of course that wasn't feasible.
1: Fortune finally intervened when Michael met Wim van de Waal, a young patrol officer based 50 miles south who happened to be in Augatz. Resourceful and capable, Vonderval had constructed his own catamaran out of two traditional Osmot canoes, a platform topped with a thatched hut, and an outboard motor. As soon as Michael saw the boat, he knew it was exactly what he needed, and he bought it off Vonderval for
0: about $200. On October 10th, Michael and Vasing set off on a three week excursion around the northern part of Osmot with Simon and Leo, two young guides from a village near Agats.
1: Now that he was on his second trip to the region, Michael felt more confident. The team zipped around the rivers, dropping into village after village. Michael commissioned a canoe from a master carver in the village of Pear, collected drums, spears, shields, paddles, and skulls, visited both researchers and villagers he'd met before, and filmed and photographed locals in their daily life.
0: In his journal and letters, he compared himself to Tom Sawyer, an explorer on a grand adventure. In
1: early November,
0: the crew returned to Agats to refuel, restock their supply
1: of trading goods, and arrange transport back to New York for all the pieces Michael had collected. Things were going well, and Michael had plans.
0: On November 15, 1961, Michael had tea in Agats with a Dutch missionary, Father Hubertus van Pey, who was based in Utsch.
1: Both men were heading south to the Och region on Friday, and Father von Pei suggested Michael, Bossing, and their guides accompany him to Och via the rivers. This time of year, he warned, the seas could be rough and unpredictable, especially on the route Michael had planned through where the strong currents
0: of the Betch River met the Arafura Sea. Michael declined the offer, explaining that he had to stop in the coastal village of Pear in order to check on the canoe he'd commissioned. But he'd meet Van Pei and Ach in a few days.
1: After that, he'd go to nearby Amanamkai, where three of the bishpoles he'd bought from the Ochinep had been delivered. And then he'd continue south to meet up with Van Kessel, the missionary he'd met previously, who was going to take him around to more remote villages in the south.
0: Michael, Vossing, Simon and Leo left Agats on Friday morning. Their catamaran was fully loaded. In fact, it was so heavy that a Dutch official maintained he told Michael to unload some of the weight before setting off. Michael said he would, but of course he didn't.
1: They arrived in pair around noon and spent the rest of the day and that night in the village. And then the next morning, November 18th, 1961, They set out to cross the
0: dangerous stretch of water
1: where the mighty Betch River meets the winds and currents of the
0: Arafura Sea. The thing about this stretch of water is that when the winds are calm and the currents mild, the water can be still and very easy to navigate. But that could change in an instant. When it was at its worst, it was a treacherous mess of cross currents, powerful waves, and whirlpools.
1: On this day, the catamaran hadn't made it too far across the river's mouth before it ran into trouble. A breeze and gentle rocking gave way to winds and big waves, and it wasn't long before a wave knocked the outboard motor out of commission.
0: They weren't too far from shore, and Simon and Leo insisted that they abandon the boat and swim back to land. If they drifted out to open sea, no one would ever find them.
1: But Michael didn't want to leave all his notes, cameras, and other materials, and Vossing insisted he wasn't a good enough swimmer to make it to the shore.
0: So Simon and Leo swam for help while Michael and Vossing stayed with the boat.
1: As they drifted out toward the open sea, a wave overturned the motorless boat. The two men salvaged some food, water, and fuel, climbed onto the overturned hulls, and waited.
0: It took Simon and Leo several hours of swimming through the rough seas and strong current to reach shore, and then hours more to trek through the mud back to Agats, but they made it.
1: By 1 a.m. on November 19th, the Dutch authorities in Agats had a ship heading down the river to find Michael and Vossing. But in a twist of fate, the ship's barrel of fuel was forgotten on the dock, and the ship ran out of gas about 10 miles from its destination. Just like Michael and Vossing. it had no radio.
0: In the morning, the two men clinging to the overturned catamaran realized they could still see the coast. The currents had carried them south, and the tide was high. Vossing guessed they were three miles or so off land. Michael suggested
1: they swim for shore. They were never going to be closer than this. The water was warm and all they'd have to do was keep moving forward.
0: Vasing refused. He wasn't a strong enough swimmer. The open sea was known to be prowled by sharks. And anyway, the first rule of boating is never to leave the boat, which, in this case, was also the only way they would ever be found and rescued. He also felt responsible for Michael. After all, he'd been assigned to him by the government and pleaded with the young man not to go.
1: But Michael wouldn't be convinced otherwise. He'd grown up swimming off the coast of Maine and had maintained his excellent physical fitness since his stint in military training. Plus, they had no idea if Simon and Leo had made it to shore, much less managed to find help.
0: And then he lowered himself into the warm waters of the Arafura Sea and set off towards land.
1: Vossing watched him swim away until the three tiny dots disappeared into the distance.
0: And that was the last time anyone ever saw Michael Rockefeller.
1: Or at least, that's the official explanation of his disappearance, apparently accepted by both his family and the Dutch government.
0: But not everyone agreed. Rumors started in the U.S. that one of the richest men in America might want to go off the grid. And in Dutch New Guinea, rumors that the Ozmat had returned to headhunting had started to take hold.
1: We'll explore the veracity of these rumors after the break.
0: Now back to the story.
1: When Michael Rockefeller swam away from his overturned catamaran on the morning of November 19, 1961... He had no way of knowing that the catamaran would have been located by the Dutch military by that afternoon. Nor could he have known that Rene Vossing, whom he'd left behind, would be rescued the following morning.
0: He also couldn't have known that his disappearance would prompt his father, Governor Nelson Rockefeller, and his twin sister, Mary, to fly all the way to New Guinea.
1: But when they did, They brought the world's attention with them to Dutch New Guinea for an all-consuming nine-day search.
0: For the Netherlands, the timing seemed perfect for the world's eyes to be on Dutch New Guinea. Their foreign minister, Josef Loons, was presenting his plan for the future of Dutch New Guinea to the United Nations that very week. The search would allow the Dutch to show the world just how much they'd done for their colony.
1: The Dutch government instructed the colonial authorities in New Guinea to do everything possible for Governor Rockefeller to pull out all the stops in the search to find his son. But they also instructed the leaders on the ground to make sure that both the governor and the international press left with a favorable impression of Dutch New
0: Guinea. This was their chance to show the world that Dutch New Guinea was everything they'd said it was. A modern country ready for self-determination with Dutch help, of course.
1: And the Dutch did pull out all the stops. Their navy and air force in the area combed the region, and they enlisted local Osmots to search the rivers in the jungle. The Australian military helped out as well, with low-flying planes and helicopters inspecting the jungle.
0: The politically-charged nature of the situation was most obvious when, several days into the search, the U.S. naval commander in the region offered to send whatever resources were needed. The Indonesian government accused the Dutch of getting cozy with the U.S. Navy in order to drive a wedge between Indonesia and the U.S.
1: And Sukarno's people added, if the Dutch needed American help, clearly they were not as competent governors as they claimed to be.
0: As a result, the Dutch declined the U.S. Navy's offer of aid.
1: On November 24th, five days after Michael had disappeared, a patrol ship picked up a red gasoline can far to the south of the Osmat coast. Could it have been one of the ones Michael was using for flotation? Vossing looked at it and said it could have been one of theirs, but he couldn't be sure.
0: The search continued, but after nine days of looking, no other signs were found.
1: The Dutch government admitted they no longer held any hope of finding Michael alive and presumed that he'd been lost at sea before he'd made it to
0: shore. Governor Rockefeller accepted their analysis and thanked the Dutch colonial government profusely for their thorough search and unconditional help. He even praised them for their relationship with the native populations who had so readily helped with the search. The Dutch had achieved their goal.
1: On November 28, 1961, Nelson Rockefeller and his daughter returned to New York. As far as they were concerned, Michael had perished at sea.
0: And that is the first theory, and the official explanation, that Michael either drowned or was eaten by sharks or crocodiles before he reached land.
1: It seems logical. Michael had been awake and adrift at sea for nearly 24 hours by the time he started swimming. They had food and water, but presumably were trying to ration it.
0: And though Vasing thought they were about three miles from shore, they were more likely somewhere between nine and 12 miles from land.
1: And sharks do prowl the Arathura, while crocodiles line the shallow, muddy coastal swamps that form a several-mile buffer between the sea and dry land.
0: It seems like a reasonable assumption that Michael would have perished at sea one way or another.
1: And yet, he was tied to two flotation devices, and dead bodies float. So if he'd run out of energy and drowned, his body should have been easily located by the radar of the Dutch planes and ships. That radar was how they located Vossing.
0: Similarly, sharks don't tend to eat humans in one go. They'll usually rip their prey apart, eating only portions of the body at a time. Plus, gas cans and rope wouldn't exactly have been to a shark's taste. Which is all to say that some remains should have been found.
1: But more than that, the sharks in the Arafura aren't known for attacking humans. Indeed, there are no recorded instances of shark attacks along the Osmot coast in the last 100 years. That's not to say an attack is impossible, but it seems unlikely.
0: As for crocodiles, while they are certainly known to eat humans, they don't do so regularly in the Osmot region. It would be almost more surprising for one to randomly attack a human than to leave him alone.
1: It's also worth remembering that Michael was a strong, smart swimmer in peak physical condition. Yes, he was tired, but he knew when the tides would come in to push him towards land. He also knew that the last mile or so before the mangrove swamps would be shallow, if muddy.
0: In 2008, Adventure journalist Tim Sohn attempted an approximation of Michael's presumed swim starting about five miles from shore. He made it all the way, even though the sea snakes in the mangrove swamp scared him back into his cameraman's boat. But it does prove what Michael guessed. He could have made it.
1: However, the Dutch government wanted a clean answer, and Michael's death at sea was the easiest one to believe especially for the hundreds of foreigners who descended upon the area and saw Osmond as a harsh, forbidding place where only the hardiest could survive.
0: After the Rockefellers and the press left though, other theories started to surface.
1: Our second theory is that Michael Rockefeller managed to make it to land and lived out the rest of his life with a local tribe. In
0: 1968, an Australian smuggler calling himself John Donahue walked into the office of Milt Macklin, the editor in chief of the men's adventure magazine Argosy. Donahue said to Macklin, quote, What would you say if I told you I saw Michael Rockefeller alive not 10 weeks ago? End quote.
1: According to Donahue, he and a fellow smuggler and gunrunner had been making a stop on a tiny island in the Trobriand Islands, hundreds of miles southeast of Osmot, when a tall, bearded white man had stumbled out of one of the huts. He limped toward them, squinting at them, and then said, quote, I'm Michael Rockefeller, can you help me,
0: End quote. Donahue claimed that the man told them he'd made it to land only to be picked up by the marauding Trobriand Islanders and brought back with them to the other side of New Guinea. They treated him well, but they wouldn't let him leave, treating him as a sort of god.
1: Macklin peppered Donahue with questions, trying to figure out if he was lying, but just enough of his story seemed to check out. Donahue maintained that he was a criminal and didn't want to attract attention.
0: He just wanted to help the kid he'd promised to help. To Macklin, it just seemed possible. Since World War II, Pacific Island communities had been known to practice so-called cargo cults.
1: During the war, planes had dropped supplies on numerous islands in the Pacific, supplies which seemed to the locals to be gifts from some unknown god. And then, after the war, the supply stopped. This resulted in the creation of what became known as cargo cults, where many of these island communities worshipped depictions of planes and white men and conducted elaborate ceremonies
0: meant to bring back the supply drops. In some cases, white men who ended up on the islands found themselves held in benevolent captivity as some sort of god who might bring the airdrops back. Macklin, an avid
1: adventurer himself, decided to go to New Guinea and investigate. He found Kanapu, the tiny island Donahue had indicted, but it was deserted, its few grass huts no longer inhabited. Indeed, it didn't look like the kind of place that had ever had as big a community as Donahue had described.
0: Disappointed, Macklin had to head back to New York but he sent his Australian videographer on to the Ozmot region on the other side of New Guinea to explore and film.
1: Years later, after Macklin's death, a documentary film crew reviewed the Ozmot footage the cameraman had shot. In one of the shots of a flotilla of Ozmot canoes, with hundreds of Ozmot warriors chanting and rowing down a river, a white man can clearly be spotted among them. He's dressed as an Ozmot or not dressed, as the case may be, with blondish hair and a beard, chanting and rowing along with the rest.
0: Was this Michael Rockefeller? What if Michael had chosen to leave behind the privileged life of a Rockefeller and drop off the map? Working in New York City real estate or banking was certainly far less adventurous than living with the Osmot.
1: This rumor floated around for some time after his disappearance. After all, it was the 1960s, and Michael wasn't the only rich white kid to rebel from his parents or even to move to an isolated culture far from the West. It also made sense in light of his parents' very public and painful divorce and his love of Osmot
0: culture. But does it make sense when we consider who Michael was? He had big plans for his future as an art collector, photographer, and an expert on Osmot art. He'd written about them just days before in his journal and letters.
1: And as much as he loved Osmot art, he wasn't particularly connected to the culture. He found the work beautiful and the craftsman skilled, but he never learned the language and seemed to have little understanding of the deep spiritual and cultural meanings of each of the pieces he was purchasing. He never spent more than a couple days in any given town and didn't seem to have built any meaningful relationships with Osmots
0: all of which makes it seem unlikely that he would voluntarily cast off his future as a cultural luminary in favor of a life as a villager, either in Asmat or elsewhere in the region.
1: In fact, after his investigation, Milt Macklin didn't think Michael Rockefeller was still living in Melanesia either, voluntarily or not. No, after he tracked down and interviewed Father von Pei, one of the Dutch missionaries who'd known Michael in Osmat. Macklin had a much different conclusion about what had happened to Michael.
0: Because as far as Von Pei was concerned, there was no doubt whatsoever that Michael had died in November 1961. His Osmot sources had told him so.
1: Which brings us to our final theory. A theory that first cropped up within months of Michael's disappearance, first among people in Osmat, and then in international newspapers. A theory that would never go away, despite the Rockefeller family and the Dutch government insisting
0: otherwise. A theory that suggests that Michael made it to shore, where he was captured and eaten by cannibals.
1: Shortly after Michael's disappearance and the departure of the international search teams, a rumor from the Osmont villages made its way to missionaries like Von Pey and Van Kessel.
0: The details varied here and there, but the broad strokes were consistent. The men of Ochenep had spotted what they thought was a crocodile on the coast. When they got closer, they realized it wasn't a crocodile, but a white man named Mike who had come to the village before. They speared him, then took him back into the jungle, where they killed, butchered, and ate him in the ritual way required by their customs. His bones, underwear, and glasses were spread amongst the men who had participated. Of Ochenep's five leaders, only one, a man named Dombai, had protested and refused to participate.
1: When interviewed years later, nearly every missionary who'd been in the region at the time said they'd heard the story and tried to investigate. None ever got any confirmation beyond second- and third-hand rumor,
0: but all were convinced it could have been true. Every attempt to report it to the church and governmental hierarchy, however, was shut down. When the rumor ended up printed in an AP story, the Dutch New Guinea government responded that it had been thoroughly investigated and found it to be untrue.
1: After all, cannibalism and headhunting no longer happened in Asmat and there was no way they were going to let any reports to the contrary get out, especially in such a
0: high-profile case. However, government myth aside, it was common knowledge that the Ozmot didn't eat white people. They headhunted only other Ozmots. A large part of this had to do with the fact that the Ozmot had long suspected that the few white people they encountered might be spirits from Safan rather than humans.
1: So why would the famously brutal men of Ochenep have broken the tradition with Michael Rockefeller?
0: Remember 1958, when Max Lepre and his team of armed police opened fire on the village of Ochenep in a massive misunderstanding, murdering five people? And how when Michael went to the village, he saw all those bishpoles whose ceremonies hadn't yet been completed.
1: When journalist Carl Hoffman spent a month in 2012 getting to know people related to Ochenep, he discovered a key piece of the puzzle. No one apart from the Asmat had realized that, in 1958, Lepre had killed the top four members of the village's leadership.
0: And the men who succeeded them as the village's most fearsome warriors and leaders were their blood relations.
1: So, no, the Osmod had never headhunted a white man before. But white men were becoming more common in the area, and it was becoming clear that they were just humans. And the men of Ochinep had reason to want to headhunt one of them in order to help balance their dead ancestors' spirits and send them to Safan.
0: Not only did they have motive, but they also had opportunity. Over the weekend of November 18th and 19th, 1961, when Michael and Vassing were adrift at sea, a group of men from Ochinep had gone down the coast to deliver building supplies to Dutch patrol officer Wim van de Waal, who'd sold Michael his catamaran.
1: They departed on Sunday afternoon, which would have placed them around the mouth of the Utah River on Monday morning, which is approximately where and when Michael would have hit land had he made it.
0: That seems plausible. And yet, despite numerous investigations and inquiries by outsiders, no concrete piece of evidence like Michael's glasses or underwear was ever found. A handful of skulls were tested, but none ever proved to be his. And no one purported to be directly involved ever confessed.
1: The only stories about it that have reached beyond the famously tribal Osmot village of Ochenep are second- and third-hand rumors, at best.
0: Could someone have made the story up? Perhaps members of neighboring tribes, constantly threatened by Ochenep and eager to bring down the full force of the Dutch government on them, spread the rumor.
1: Or perhaps the men of Ochenep saw an opportunity to take control in a world spinning away from them, to prove that they were braver and more masculine than everyone else by claiming that they'd headhunted the missing white man, even if, in fact, they hadn't.
0: Possibly the clearest evidence that Ochenep was involved in Michael's death seemingly has little to do with him.
1: Two years after Michael's disappearance, a cholera epidemic ravaged Ochenep. From the Osmat perspective, it had been sent by a malevolent spirit. The epidemic finally ended when a new Dutch missionary, a white man, burned the dead bodies against all Osmat cultural norms.
0: The following year, as the village was recovering, one of Ochinep's five leaders, a man named Dumbai, took his people and started a new village. Apparently, the split happened after the other village leaders slept with Dumbai's wives. If you'll recall,
1: in the stories about the men of Ochinep headhunting Michael Rockefeller, one consistent fact was that Dumbai had
0: protested against the killing imagine that tensions between factions in the village had been inflamed by a major disagreement over Michael's killing in 1961. And then, a disease inflicted by spirits, possibly as revenge for killing a white man, ravaged the village.
1: It makes sense that one more insult and disagreement would prompt Ambai and the people who hadn't agreed with the killing to separate themselves from the fate of the rest of the Ochinep.
0: I think they probably did it. It seems sensationalist at first, but it makes sense once you understand the Osmut worldview and realize that he could definitely have survived the swim. I agree.
1: The consistent rumors and infighting
0: don't really make sense otherwise. And the other theories don't really line up. The Australian smuggler's story about having seen Michael on an island seemed more fantasy than reality.
1: It also doesn't make sense, considering Michael's plans for the future, that he would have gone off the grid, especially in such a dramatic fashion.
0: But of course, there's no proof either way. And it's unlikely that there ever will be.
1: Which means that the speculation about what happened to Michael Rockefeller isn't likely to stop anytime soon. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you want to find more episodes or any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your
0: favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked us how you can help the show. Well, if you enjoy the show, the best way you can do that is to leave a five-star review.
1: You can also tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at Network, or at ParCast.com.
0: We'll be back in two weeks with another episode.
1: Just because it's gone, doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admeyer and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Kate Thorman and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.